We want to take a second to thank you for supporting Womance by listening to our podcast. One great way that you can continue supporting us, including those listens, is hitting subscribe, telling a friend, leaving a review. That stuff all really matters. Sharing it on your personal social media is another great way to spread the word about Womance. And another option for supporting us, if we may be so bold, is to recommend going to our Patreon, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us spread the word of woe. If you want to contribute more than a dollar a month, which obviously no pressure, whatever you've got, we are so appreciative to have, but we have awesome gifts for you. If you want a hand addressed letter from Morgan and Isabeau, maybe with some special woe stickers, other merch, just uh, visit our Patreon. We are Womance on Patreon, or is it patreon.com forward slash Womance? We would be very proud to call you one of our patrons. This episode is brought to you by Kensington's newest title, The Most Eligible Bride in London by Ella Quinn. I really hope that Ella Quinn is a pen name and it's a pun on eloquent. <laughs> Let me tell you about this book. Perfect for the Bridgerton binge watcher. USA Today bestselling author Eloquin is known for her passion-filled and witty take on the glittering world of the tongue in Regency London. Reviewers have compared her favorably to Lisa Kleypas, Tessa Dare, Julia Quinn, and even Jane Austen herself. The inventor of the tongue. With the third book in her charming Lords of London series, a former rogue on the path to reputation redemption is drawn to the sister of a woman he once wronged. Can he make amends and prove he has turned over a new leaf? Can she put aside a family grudge and look towards a new future? Ooh, Ella Quinn is the USA Today bestselling author of smart and spicy Regency romances, including The Worthingtons, The Marriage Game, and the aforementioned Lords, uh, Lords uh, of London series. Uh, she has extensively researched the Regency era, immersing her stories with the flavor and feel of the period so that re- readers lose themselves in the time. But did she, like the author of Venetia, find the one and only letter contemporaneously written so that she could use it in her book? To call someone a cake. To call someone a cake. All insults are historically accurate and specific to one person. That's how you know a (laughs) book is well researched. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but I will, just like you, seek out this book because Lisa Kleypas, Tessa Dare, I mean, funny Regencies are a delight. It's true. And if you're looking for this book, you can find The Most Eligible Bride in London by Ella Quinn, wherever books are sold. Find out more at kensingtonbooks.com. Do it. Do it. Okay. It's the end. I'm Morgan. And I'm Edlubo. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About scrunchies. About dragon billionaire boss daddies. About all silk everything. (laughs) About marking your mate. About hard, open lips. About 
secret powers you didn't know you had. About vertical blinds. About secret babies you didn't know you had. About fine cut nostrils. About being an it girl and not knowing you were it. And about 90% of the time, it's about tofu stir fries. (laughs) But mostly it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week, we're reading in our monster march, Dragonbound, the first book in the Elder Races by Thea Harrison. An often requested book. An often requested book and often talked and subtweeted about book uh, because it is rumored to have dragon sex in dragon form. Mm-hmm. In fact, one would say that's the main reason we decided to read it. It is the main reason we decided to read it, Morgan. It is the only reason. <laughs> we said this one has a dragon having sex. And I need to see a dragon dick on page. That's just the text yeah. I need in my life. So I'm going to read the back of the book and then we'll just uh, unfurl our wings as a twerm. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll get this party started. Half human, half were, Pia Giovanni spent her life keeping a low profile among the were kind and avoiding the continuing conflict between them and their dark fae em- enemies. But after being blackmailed into stealing a coin from the horde of a dragon, Pia finds herself targeted by one of the most powerful and passionate of the elder races. As the most feared and respected of the weird kind, Dragos Culebre cannot believe someone had the audacity to steal from him, much less succeed. And when he catches the thief, Dragos spares her life, claiming her as his own to further explore the desire they've ignited in each other. Pia knows she must repay Dragos for her trespass, but refuses to become his slave, although she cannot deny wanting him, body and soul. Mm -mm. Uh Uh-oh. Where do we begin? I think we should begin at the beginning, because one of the things that I did enjoy about this book is that dragonkind were born at the same time as Earth. And so... Our Dragos's first memory is like the Big Bang. I assumed you meant the beginning of the book, but the <laughs> no. beginning of all time in the book's lore also works. Let's go. Big Bang. Um, and I kind of loved that. I was like, oh, I've never thought about this before. Okay, so he began with the Big Bang. He witnesses the primordial ooze. He like eats people, then decides people, like, maybe have souls, so he'll stop eating them. And just, like, amasses his wealth and massive hoard over the century. Like, he he just is really, really old, which makes his billionaire daddy status, I don't know, not any more interesting than any other billionaire daddy I've read, but at least more explainable. Like, the fact that he has all of these, like, original Chagall paintings and whatever. I'm like, okay, you were born at the beginning of time. I guess you can have that Chagall or that Picasso in your fucking hoard in New York City in a tower. Whatever. This book does have, like, not obvious name drops, which was kind of refreshing for a romance novel that, you know, a contemporary, a contemporary 
romance novel because they often have specific references and they're usually, you know, common denominators, but there were some more interesting references as far as art goes in this one. So that's cool. There was a very specific bottle of wine referenced. I haven't looked it up. I kind of hope it sucks, but it probably is pretty good. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of materiality in this book. Yeah, a ton of it. Chock full. I want to talk about the materiality. Great, I do too. But I think a good way to, a good entry point is to say that this book was published in 2011. Is that right? It is. Do you remember, what What did you have going on in 2011? God, what a mean question. We're two years. Why, was it not a good year? <laughs> We're two years post-economic collapse. I have been rejected from eight grad schools. I am slinging drinks at College Bar in Columbia, Missouri, and I'm meeting a lot of really excellent people. I was a sophomore in, in college, uh, living in a basement apartment, and uh, not literally having that same experience, but spiritually having a pretty rough <laughs> go of it. 2011 <laughs> was a bad personal year. It was not a good year for anyone in I, the I world. Mean, yeah, like it was like it was peak recession. The jobs hadn't come back even a little bit yet. And so everyone was in grad school, hence eight rejection letters. Hence eight rejections. <sighs> yeah, I mean, I was competing with people who already had master's degrees. They're like, nothing else to do but go back. Is the only safe place. Uh, yeah, so slinging drinks. I will say, great year for movies. Okay. Best Picture nominees were 127 Hours. Wow. Directed by Danny Boyle. Black Swan. Wow. The Fighter. Wow. Inception. Wow. The Kids Are All Right. Mm. The Social Network. <laughs> Toy Story 3. Oh my God. True Grit and Winter's Bone. But do you know what won Best Picture? Well, it wasn't Toy Story 3 because that was robbed. The King's Speech. Oh, yeah. Disappointing. And like that kind of perfectly captures the nature of the Academy Awards. It really does. They could have done something. They could have really done something. I mean, like there are innovative movies. There are warm, touching movies. There's like The Social Network, which is still talked. Like all of these movies, I feel like, are more prescient or relevant today than The King's Speech. Yeah, the King's Speech was just supposed to make you feel good about, like, sad white people, which was, like, I don't know, sad, well-resourced white people. Well, well-resourced, yeah. Winter's Bone, I think, would be the opposite of the King's Speech. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> poor people in Appalachia continue to be poor and desperate in Appalachia. Yeah, let's see what one album of the year. I love doing this. Do you have any guesses? None whatsoever. I would not have put The King's Speech and Toy Story in the same year. What a year, though. Those were all... I remember those all being good. Oh, my God. Oh, my God, what? I'm going to say culturally a recession did some good stuff. I feel like this recession has not made very many interesting movies. But then again, we're not that deep. At, <laughs> I think we forget how far, how long uh, the desperate... Um, oh my god. Album of the Year, The Suburbs by Arcade Fire. Recovery by Eminem. Need You Now by Lady Antebellum. Now Lady A, now go fuck yourselves. <laughs> 
If you don't understand that controversy, look it up. The Fame Monster by Lady Gaga. Nice. Came out and was nominated. And Teenage Dream by Katy Perry. Wow. Uh... Esperanza Spaulding won Best New Artist. She beat Justin Bieber, Drake, Florence and the Machine, and Mumford and Sons. Holy shit. All right, 2011. I see you. Oh, man. Yeah. All right. And it is, so you have all of these cultural touch points. I'm now going to read to you verbatim a description of one of the heroine's outfits in this book. In the bedroom, Pia grabbed the second new outfit she had bought, along with underwear, a pair of blue jean capris, and a lemon yellow stretch t-shirt with capped short sleeves Mm -hmm. and a scalloped neck. She's wearing a scrunchie at this time as well. A puffy scrunchie. You know, the scrunchies that recently came back from the mid-90s when they died. I feel like you and I are about to have the fight that Carrie has with one of her boyfriends about the scrunchie in New York City in 2004. (laughs) The scrunchie (laughs) is an indicator of people who do not live in New York City, Uh is what Carrie says to Berger. Uh What's interesting is our our leading lady is a New Yorker, and she does wear a lot of scrunchies. She does. In 2011... Which is several years after <laughs> Carrie and Berger have parted ways via post-it. Yep. Are you going to defend the scrunchie? I am not going to defend the scrunchie. I'm just saying that when I read it, I was like, oh, I f- what year am I in? Oh, wait. Immediately. Immediately. The wrong year. And then I was like, Capri pants. And I remember vividly, Oprah had a thing about pants. In the early aughts, like, 03, 04. Yeah. Where she's like, all shorts need to be longer, or, like, all shorts need to be Bermuda shorts to be the most flattering. Like, if you're going to try to, like, approximate hourglass figure. If you're going to wear capris, they should actually really be clam diggers, which is a little longer than a capri, because this is where capris cut your shins, and they always make your feet look too big, and your legs look too short. And I remember this conversation Oprah had with whoever this fashion person was vividly, because then I was like I can never wear capris and I must only wear Bermuda shorts <laughs> or clam diggers I said I can never wear capris I can only cuff my jeans I immediately clocked this New Yorker as like a fashion faux pas and I was like is it 2004 oh no it's it's 2011 2011. And here's the problem with being specific in a romance novel. It's going to be distracting. Like, this is this is two levels here. The first level is it's distracting because the references aren't cool or interesting again. You have not reached the point at which your contemporary novel is now basically a historical novel for your readership right the other layer is embarrassing your main character if you get it wrong (laughs) yeah pia sucks and not the least of which because of her fucking fashion choices (sighs) this is a problem of specificity and i think like 
uh, the retreat into such specific materiality. And like, I think it's so important, listener, that Morgan told you that this was the second outfit that she <laughs> bought. The first outfit was also told to us in this kind of vivid detail. And the third outfit is also told to us in this kind of vivid detail. Her preferred sneakers are custom-made New Balance running <laughs> shoes. In the year 2011, New Balance has not clawed its way out of the dad jean basement it was in. It is still firmly in that basement in 2011. For sure. In 2011, it's like not even hot dads. It's like dad dads. It's like Wisconsin dads. Like not that Wisconsin dads can't be hot, but like they're not who you think of immediately. Maybe this was like super cutting edge norm core. No, I think. Do you remember the brief moment of norm core? That still kind of reverberates where young hot people were wearing like poorly cut khakis and New Balance sneakers. Yeah, that circulates. But this isn't that. No, I don't think that's (laughs) (laughs) It's close. But it's like not self-aware enough. I was going to say, this isn't the gap like... Well, she's not making a statement, right? Like, she's not like a clothes, she's not like a fashion person. No. Which, like, to be fair, Pia is raised by an agoraphobic reclusive mother. That explains the homeschool chic capri pants. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, you know, like, maybe she just, like, didn't know how to do it because her mother was an agoraphobe and, like, they didn't go anywhere. She worked in a bar in New York City. As a bartender, you tell me a better dressed, hotter group than women who are bartenders in New York City. In New York City? (laughs) No one. (laughs) Also on the cutting edge of that fashion, because they fucking know where the fashion shows are and like all that resale. Like all of my friends who were in New York at that time, like walked away with like hundreds of thousands of dollars in jeans and like super cool tops that they would just like get at these weird factories. I'm not like gagging over New York. Sure. As evidenced by the fact that Chicago is the greatest city in the world. The godhead of the evil empire in this book. I think the feeling's mute. <laughs> but there is something about like when you go to New York, like like the creativity is like everywhere, you know, and concentrated. And so you can see like five yeah. different new things. And I just think that breeds like a certain amount of boldness and experimentation and individuality that you don't get here in the Midwest, I'm sorry to say, in the same way. You don't get it. Yeah, in the same way. And so the fact that she's so egregiously, sartorially drawn was distracting. Like, it was distracting. It is egregiously sartorially drawn. Yeah, to the point where it's like that also, like, informed (laughs) how I read her personality. So she immediately and horrendously annoyed me because then I was just, like, looking for other things for her to fail on, which isn't the character's fault. It's definitely on the part of the author. So there's that. I also just, like, there's that... Um, how do I want to move on from this materiality or should we just keep talking about the specificity of it? My question that this has arisen for me is like, why does this seem to exist so much more in romance novels than it does in, you know, literally, and 
you know, sci-fi will talk about clothes, but it's because they're weird. And like fantasy will talk about clothes because it's weird. And historical romance will talk about clothes because they're weird in particular. But why does contemporary romance insist on telling me about outfits like it's a Nancy Drew novel? I do believe that there have to be some writers who are doing it well. I believe that there are some writers who are doing it well. Writers who do contemporary romance, specificity and clothes, make it part of the fantasy. Yeah. The kiss quotient where she has the special French seams, Danny Brown where he's got the mm-hmm. particular like artist outfit and then she always wears – and I remember the detail of she sewed up her buttons on her cardigan so that it wouldn't flare out. So you – that was very yep. – you know, it says a lot about the character, right? There's something here that tells me nothing about the character except that she does not look good and then everyone around her is like, I'm a, I am a mystical being and I cannot get enough of your New Balance sneakers and your scrunchie in your hair, Hachimami. And your Capri pants. <laughs> Hachimami. Also, a Dolce, the one like designer that gets dropped is Dolce & Gabbana, which has not aged well. Also, Google that. Or even like we have, we're introduced at the beginning of the book to this PR representative for Quilebre, Culebre in, uh, Enterprises, who's a fairy and she has lilac hair. And I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. But then she wears a silk suit with f- motherfucking gladiator sandals that supposedly cost more than a decent car. Mm-hmm. Where did you find those gladiator sandals at any point in human history, unless they were literal sandals that belonged to a gladiator? Why is it so bad? But why would you do it? Why would you write about the materiality of a character's world without it saying something interesting or relevant? Like, what's the, what's the, impetus about that and unfortunately the only explanation I can find is I'm calling back to my own personal short stories I wrote when I was a kid wherein I fantasized about all the cool outfits I would have and all the cool cars and all the cool apartments and I would include all of these details that had nothing to do with anything and that's what makes me cringe the deepest I think it's also, if you don't have anything to say, a retreat into detail feels like a place where you don't have to fill out personality. Like, we're supposed to understand that fairy PR person. We're supposed to understand something about her personality from her silk suit and her gladiator sandals. But I don't understand anything from those choices. Like, I don't understand anything about Pia Mm. other than she's, like, hopelessly, fashionably out of step. But, like... That's not her personality. It's not acknowledged by anyone around her. Also, New Balance shoes are like, no, they're not personality. You know what I mean? Like, they're just (laughs) not. They are literally the absence (laughs) Right, they're like the most (laughs) non-controversial fucking running shoes in the world. So it's like, even when the specific detail is supposed to tell me something, like, I guess I'm supposed to understand her as practical. I just don't understand her at all. 
all. That that like throws a horseshoe in it, but it also seems to me as like a way of like if you don't feel comfortable talking about a person's personality other than like a sassy comeback or that she's quirky, that this is the kind of literary fiction work that you would do, right? Like I can tell you what Holden Caulfield was wearing in New York City, but all of those choices told me something about his personality. Yeah, the beat up Weegians. People still wear those in exactly. order to align themselves yes. with Holden Caulfield. Not me though. <coughs> <laughs> I never did that. Those details were the first kind of, for me, the first kind of Donna, Donna, Donna of what would be the shrieking crescendo of danger that is the third act. I really enjoyed the first two acts of this novel, which I would describe as the first act being when we meet Pia, she's just done something incredibly bold, and she's decided it was a huge mistake, and she's trying to get away from it. The second act being when she meets up with the dragon, Dragos, um, and he is about to enact revenge, but instead Mm -hmm. he enacts sex. And they go to the other world. The third act is when they return to New York City hand in hand. And basically it becomes like saying it's a shrieking crescendo is a misnomer because it's in fact like that weird buzzy sound from an air conditioner and the occasional ringing of a phone and the tapping on a keyboard of bureaucracy It reminded me of all of the worst parts of the Star Wars prequels. It's so funny when you said the the sound of an air conditioner. I'm like, yeah, it's like the sound that it's it's like when your friend brings out like a really nice air mattress and you're like, oh, maybe maybe this time my ass won't end on the floor. And like you sure enough, my ass in one shoulder and one shoulder. It's like, you know, the sound that this third act makes is the sound that your body makes in at midnight when you're on it, when you hear that's when you can't find the hole in the very lush air mattress and you begin to feel yourself (laughs) sink it's really specific (laughs) it's like the beginning of the book I was willing to forgive all of these weirdly specific details because I found the story to be really fascinating and like the world that we lived in to be really interesting that there were these pockets where you could enter into a solely magical world there was like corporate gamesmanship between the dragon realm which is in New York and the elf realm which is in fucking North Carolina and but those are the light elves and then they're the dark elves who live in Chicago and they are they're all in this like weird corporate seizure mode of one another which was very interesting the dark fairies are in Chicago Mm -hmm. and that's all we get but that's all we need and so you know you're like okay well this is a pretty deft hand supporting me along and like The sex scenes were, like, very good, very exciting. And I had so much to look forward to because I thought there was going to be a dragon sex scene. And so far, the dragon in human form sex scenes had been great. So I was excited as we landed in New York City. And then the air began to filter out of the mattress. (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, there's like there's a really there's a lot of interesting things about Pia. She so she's tasked with stealing something from the dragon's hoard. She steals a 1962 penny from this like jar, and she leaves a penny, and she says that she's sorry. And he tracks her down because obviously you can't steal anything from a dragon hoard and get away with it. Yeah, she she leaves a 7-Eleven receipt. What an idiot! What an uh, idiot. <laughs> Obviously not very good at stealing. Yeah, not a criminal mastermind. Uh, and her 7-Eleven receipt includes a cherry Coke slushie, hell yeah, and Twizzlers, which I'm kind of neutral about. Sure. And he goes, he's never had either of those things, so he has one of his underlings purchase them for him, and he hates them, which, cute detail. He tracks her down, and then, like, a bunch of things start happening because, like, there's something about Pia, and everybody wants her, <laughs> and he doesn't know why, and he's curious about, like, whatever powers that she has, and, like, she can unlock locks, and she can get out of sticky situations and all this other stuff so like there's like a building mystery around what Pia is and I think like that part unfolded pretty okay I knew as soon as her hair was referred to as a mane I was like okay I know what this is I had no idea I was shocked oh really when she is unleashed spoiler alert it turns out she's a unicorn she's a unicorn and her mother was in fact the last unicorn. The last unicorn. The last purebred unicorn on planet Earth. Yeah. Pia is, of course, a half-breed, um, but a very powerful one. Yes. But you may be wondering, here, here are two things that really stood out in my mind about the unicorn reveal. One, she's the size of a Shetland pony. I'm so glad that you brought that up. Are unicorns in anyone's minds the size of Shetland ponies? <laughs> Been your Has that vision? ever been your fantasy of a unicorn? Like a little chunky Shetland pony with a horn. Saint Bernard of a horse. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. Come on. And it, yeah, exactly. And like, maybe it's not stout, but I can't imagine how something that small on hooves wouldn't have to be that stout. I guess it could be like a deer. Even deer are taller than Shetland ponies. Shetland ponies are not very tall. And if a dragon made love to a deer, that deer would not survive. <laughs> that deer but would my die. eyes are now the size of saucers because... <laughs> The dragon sex scene hasn't happened yet. And I'm like, oh my God, is this about to go down between a dragon and a Shetland pony with an ice cream cone on its forehead? First of all, this dragon's size has been described as a very specific private plane that is an eight-seater. <laughs> I guess I can picture an eight-seater private plane, but like when you throw up the Shetland pony against that, I'm like, this can never happen. What the fuck? And I thought I was like, no way, no way. How are we gonna do this? No fucking way. And guess what? The book also said no way (laughs) because that didn't happen. I don't know where. The Twitter rumor got started. And if you did it, shame on you. Because many people on Goodreads also said, I read this book because it was supposed to have dragon, fully dragon sex. Like, there was supposed to be dragon peen. And there isn't. There's a moment where she looks at his, I'm going to read it, 
I'm going to read it verbatim. Please do. Please do. So for the first time, Pia sees him change into his dragon form in the other land uh, in order to... Their lives from the Dark Fae. First place she looks. She stared for a frozen moment at the slit in the sheath of thick bronze hide between his legs, covering the region of his genitals. There didn't appear to be any part of him that was vulnerable. So his penis is inside a little slit in his dragon body to to protect it. If you're going to show me a gun in act two it better come out of its bronzed flesh seat sheath by the end of act four okay that's the promise that you made she didn't have to look at his genitals we never had to talk about his dragon genitals and it could have been really interesting because there's this scene where she's (laughs) it certainly could have been isabel it certainly could have been. A dragon wiener sex scene absolutely could have been There's a scene at the tower in Act 3 where she's, like, showing his griffin guards that she can, like, do self-defense. And he comes in <laughs> and sees one of the griffins, like, basically attacking her doggy style. Mm-hmm. And he flies into a jealous billionaire daddy rage. And he's, like, shifting while he's doing it and throws his like number one lieutenant against a wall and his hands are talons and like his skin has gone scale yeah and I was like oh man is this what the sex scene's gonna be like because it's really cool in this like horrible and hyper violent scene but it'll be (laughs) this will be super neat (laughs) in a sex scene (laughs) and then we get to the end without it and I was like well fuck what the fuck did I just do he like cups her face with his bloody talons while he smooches her. Not enough. Not enough. <sighs> I just wanted some dragon peen. I just didn't think that was a bridge too far. But look, listen, I don't think I'm blowing anybody's mind by saying that was the whole point of this entire series. And now the show is canceled because of dragon bound honestly who came up with that lie i don't know but like it is persistent this book came out in 2011 and we read it in 2022 that's 11 years of lie it's awful rumors are powerful they certainly are so that's good to know speaking of powerful rumors no I'm, i'm taking it a little bit further back speaking of the sheath of thick bronze hide Mm, mm-hmm. In 2011, when you were a sophomore and, you know, going through a tough personal year and you, you know, Obama was president. Mm. Did you think that we had solved racism because we'd elected a black man as president? No. Exactly. This book maybe thinks that, though. Show your evidence. Okay. So when our... Dragos is in his human form. He's six foot eight and has dinner plates for hands. Uh, and he's bronze and he has black hair. Bronze. It's also described as tawny. It's also described as tawny. It is silky black hair. It is without kink or curl. Mm-hmm. Very specific. Yeah. And our unicorn Pia is brilliantly white. Like, arrestingly ivory in points. 
and platinum blonde hair <laughs> just comes out of her head like that like a mane and everyone else we meet is also described with skin that is always pigmented either white or tawny. That is so true. That's very... No one gets away without having their skin commented upon by this book. Yeah. And it only comes in two flavors. But lest you think that anything ethnic is happening here, he has silky spiky hair without kink. Or curl. Gross. Why wouldn't a dragon have curly hair or be any... A racial identity. (laughs) He was born at the beginning of time. Why couldn't he? And she's the last unicorn. Like, okay. The inclusion of the, like, because there were times when I was like, oh, okay. Like, this is like, the thing, I think the thing that's like the most damning is that it felt the need to say his hair was without kink or curl, which is a little too particular. Mm-hmm. It is very damning. It didn't say, <laughs> yeah, it didn't say he had like straight hair. Yeah, it's like, he's not brown. Don't worry, he's Greek. It didn't just say he had silky hair. Uh, It really did not want to leave any room for any interpretation. And all the elves are white. The goblins are gray. Hmm. But for a fantasy world, I don't like, you know, we haven't come any any space between here and Tolkien, right? And that's not fun, I don't think. And also to, that like there's such a religious reliance on like, oh, here's a new character. They are ivory. Here's a new character. Right. He's a griffin. He's also tawny, but mostly white because he's got blue eyes. <laughs> there is a Native American, or I think they said American Indian in the book. A Thunderbird. Tiago, who, which, you know that book that we read about a Thunderbird shifter? Yeah. Bachelor in Paradise? Yeah. Did a way better job. Way better. Yeah, like I, the addition of like um, a Native, like the only character who I think has their race specifically commented on. Otherwise, it's all innuendo. Yeah, I think saying this book is weird about race is uh, is safe to say. Which also makes it just a huge bummer. There was a period of time where romance, especially paranormal, was going through this uh, phase. And people are like, you guys know that you're writing white nationalist stuff because all of the good characters literally have ivory skin and then the bad elves are black. Like, you know that you're doing that. And they're like, no, no, it's a fantasy. It's it's paranormal romance. Like, why are you throwing these accusations at us? How could you say we're racist? That's so mean of you. <laughs> and it's books like this where it's like, it's not it's insidious but it's also deeply insistent it's easy to see and even more importantly mm, easy to call out yeah yeah this book is fucking weird about race you know what's new on (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly what's new but also not great no it's certainly not and and having that context of what was going on with fantasy romance makes it even more apparent. And I think, you know, I didn't have that background knowledge. So I was like, oh, it's weird. You know, (laughs) it's weirdly insistent about skin color, but also weirdly insistent about hair texture. I don't want to ascribe anything to this author. I don't know this author. This is the first book of theirs that I've read. They're very popular on Goodreads. Mm. And 
I think part of the kerfuffle and critique that came out of the paranormal fantasy romance space in 2015 was that people were defaulting to whiteness in the same way that everyone in romance historicals defaults to whiteness in Regency romance because they're like, well, that's just it. That's like elves are white and like Jane Austen characters are white. Mm. And it's like, well, it doesn't have to be that way. You're writing a fantasy in both cases. And why can't we widen our lens? Like, why, why are you being so insistent about everyone's ivory skin yeah I think it's like the insistence on everyone being white and like wanting to clarify that even if someone has a tan they're still white in like subtle ways I remember our discussion around how race was presented in neon gods Mm -hmm. there was this like one background character who was buying flowers and they're like an old latina woman and it was like what's the point of being specific about like her being latina what's going on in the world building that that exists and like what are you actually saying like that's not actually being inclusive having like a background character and I think there's also something about white people not wanting to write about characters of color but to imagine a world where people of color don't exist meaningfully is also disturbing Especially if you can envision a world with, like, seven different elder races who are all in corporate seizure fights with one another. I mean, it's, like, basically you're just envisioning, like, Bane Capital and Mitt Romney fighting a bunch of his sons. Like, why? Especially for, like, how charming this book started out with this, like, take a penny, leave a penny theft of a dragon horde. The, like, interesting world building of this book and this fun adventure part of it was so captivating and it's like suddenly it kind of like slowed down and bunched up on itself and it you know we talked about this in our last discussion about how the fantasy doesn't get weighed down because the book is so short but there's this whole third act that becomes super expositional and becomes super bureaucratic and like really gets caught up in the intricacies of the world building that it didn't need to do. And it's in those spaces where people start to notice <laughs> uh, everything you're not saying as well as everything you are saying. So in terms of what people are saying and aren't saying, I think one of the things that this book falls into is a very common romance trope of miscommunication yeah so our like book is gonna use the shifter stuff of mating um etc uh pawn far is that what it's called (laughs) the frenzy in star trek yeah pawn far good one but the The dragon says, I'm a dragon. I cannot feel love. And indeed, the dragon has had other lovers, but has not experienced love. So our hair, at one point, our main character, she's like knocked up with like weird stuff around IUDs. Like I, the amount of like detail that goofs up this book is... I don't it, it probably can be overstated, but we're not overstating it yet. Uh <laughs> he says like 
she thinks like it's impossible for him to love me because he says it's impossible that he loves me even though there's like all of the evidence that he could possibly provide that he like loves her right this happens all the time in romance novels and I've always felt weird about it. I think generally, like, if you're frustrated by a trope in romance, it's this, like, miscommunication angst, right? They won't just tell each other that they love each other. But also the expect, but that sets this weird expectation that, first of all, the only way to express that you love someone is by explicitly looking at them and saying, like, I love you. Like, you can, you should be able to pick up on other cues as a human being in the world. But it also tunes into this very vulnerable fear, I think. Like, what what cued me, I don't know what it was about this book. Maybe it's just, like, the straw that broke the camel's back, right? But I think this being such a pervasive trope is tickling the very vulnerable fear of unrequited love and presenting unrequited love as nothing more than a misunderstanding, I think it absolutely does that. I think that's a really smart way of thinking about it. I also think it's playing on the fantasy of like the miscommunication of Darcy. Like when he says, when he says, I love you in the first proposal and Elizabeth rightly points out that like you've insulted me and my whole family, like you don't love me. Here's all the evidence. I think like this miscommunication thing is playing on both things. Absolutely. We all love the tickle of an unrequited love or like to think that the hot person that you have a crush on is also crushing on you secretly and like isn't. Yeah. But in romance novels, they're constantly doing stuff for you all the time. Like it's like the care is very clear. It's just in the nonverbal love languages. It's like acts of service and time spent and like, you know, holding your hand. But I, it's like it's that part I think you're right to say like that that feeling of unrequited love and like oh no I'm alone in this oh no I my heart's on the line but theirs isn't mm-hmm. which also just like I think pulls on that feeling of like I can't say anything because like I can't be that vulnerable yeah I think this is also coming from an he's just not that into you and I think in today's parlance, if he wanted to, he would. We often find ourselves not wanting to be alone and also not wanting to be things that aren't desirable. And so regardless of whether or not we actually are in love with this person, I think we're desperate for evidence that we are lovable and more than lovable, like merely desirable. That's... Not being those things feels like a a complete exclusion from society. Like if you, especially as a woman, are not physically desirable and if you are not lovable, then your other forms of worth are not perceivable to other people, period. So it's like this very big, difficult question and this very stupid, like silly Mm -hmm. problem that comes up in romance novels again and again is actually this salve like s-a-l-v-e i'm not saying solve weirdly i am but so you can hear the a a balm to this very terrifying question that in fact determines your worth as a human being as a woman like how anyone can understand you like 
no one's going to see that you're a good person or a smart person or a funny person if they don't at first see you. And people who are not desire, women who are not desirable are invisible. I mean, this book makes that insistence explicitly, but also implicitly, it's not saying that, you know, like when she has to get out of town, her boss is like, you know, I'm worried about you, like take, you know, here are these resources that I'm going to give you. Her boss clearly wants to bone her. She wants to bone her boss. I'm not sure, like, I kind of got a read that that elf person was swinging both ways but I mean that wasn't the first read that I had it was like that this person has other kinds of love in their life and that they're so focused on the romantic they're so focused on this like I have to be sexually desirable rather than desirable in like a platonic way that they've closed themselves off to friendships and like they've made their life smaller like that's one of the problems of this main character and part of the problem of this book is like (laughs) you can't you can't She can't see her own value unless it's being told to her externally and also then explicitly in the terms of heterosexual desire. That fucking sucks. See, I don't know if this, I I think this character is very much like, I'm self-conscious, oh God, there's this like, I'm so tall. And then Mm -hmm. she at one point says, oh Jesus Christ, this is like so upsetting. Like, here's the thing. This book wants you to think that, like, she doesn't know she's attractive. That's what I think. This book wants you to know that she doesn't know that she's attractive. And so, like, the fact that her boss goes through all this trouble and then they he, like, holds her a little too long when they hug goodbye. The fact that he, like, made threats. Like, I don't think this book sees her relation, like, her boss... I think her boss is one of the men who is in tuned with her, like one of the many men who is attuned, just like the Griffins, just like everyone else who's in tuned with how attractive she is, physically attractive. She's the one who's not aware of it. I read the boss differently because she was like, I'm being chased by the dragon. But like, yeah, I think there's space for the what do you what do you mean he hugged her too close because he was afraid she was gonna die like he said those things because she he was afraid that she was gonna die but like yeah I like I I think your interpretation is equally valid and like it's super true of the griffins like she like she don't know that she beautiful runs through this like a raging river and the other thing that's so irritating is that like we know that she's 510 we know that she's leggy we know that because she describes herself that way but then she also describes herself as 140 pounds which is like <laughs> yeah so the dragon describes her as scrawny and she's like yeah like I'm scrawny I weigh 140 pounds and I'm five foot ten that is very thin very thin like clinically maybe not healthy thin at that point for a woman of that stature maybe even scrawny yeah like not good (laughs) and like the book's insistence on like thinness and petiteness especially of women because our other like main female character is thistle whatever tricks the fairy yeah and then men in the bar objectify her when they see her on the TV. Right, what I wouldn't give to be with her. And it's like, if those are our only two women on screen, ew. And they are. And like, that's like that's just another way that this book is like constantly show, like showing its own ass. There is also the literal harpy. Yeah, and she's strong mm-hmm. and tall and ostensibly weighs more than 140 pounds because like 
her musculature is described. But she's a literal harpy. Yeah. And our heroine can push her around. Yeah. Not a sex object. Yet. I haven't read the rest of the series. I think there is this inherent anxiety with being a woman. You are not meeting the criteria to be sexually desirable. And that not only means like you will die alone, but it means you like will not be able to cut it in all sorts of other areas of life. Like, it's a much bigger question. And so this problem of, like, someone is in love with you, they just haven't told you yet, feels like a balm for that larger issue. And I think that's why it comes up all the time. Because it's a universal fear that not only are we, like, being unlovable is equivalent to being like not good enough period for anything as a woman this book made me realize that i i read it as a classic everybody wants to bone her she's the only one who doesn't realize it and that's one of the things that's endearing about her because you know perhaps you're just like her everyone wants to bone you you just haven't realized it yet you just haven't opened your eyes um, and I can say as someone who has spent time with uh, what I would, who I would describe as stereotypically hot women, uh, men cannot help themselves. They are truly disgusting literalists. And if you have not received that attention constantly, then you are coasting by on your personality. I am sad to say. You are not a secret unicorn. Shetland pony sized. Sexiest part? Weirdest part? The sex scenes in this book are nice. My sexiest part, yet again, was the first sex scene that's actually taking place in a dream sequence, but it makes me ponder about consent in that scene. Not that it's begging for it, and I kind of find that refreshing, but she doesn't realize she's dreaming, and he discovers, I mean, this is it. This goes back to what I was just talking about. He needs to so he puts a tracking spell on her and in order he needs to learn her true name and some details about her so he's able to infiltrate her dreams and his plan is to tap into whatever it is she desires the most whatever she wants the most and he does this regularly and it's usually fame and it's usually wealth but in this case he finds it hilarious when he discovers that it is in fact sex And so he sets up this dream scenario where she's wearing a negligee and he's waiting in a canopy bed naked and he looks great with his with his eight pack and his broad shoulders and he awaits her and then he's surprised that someone whose only desire is sex is very beautiful. Yep. And then it turns out that it's more complicated than that, Dragos. It's not just sex, you dragon who is born at the beginning of time and doesn't know anything about love. (laughs) yeah who somehow missed all that yeah she wanted intimacy um but it's still like it's still great like it's a great sex scene billowing curtains that silk negligee the bed it's that top gun yeah nobody gets choked out (laughs) which i appreciated (laughs) no one gets called a name no one gets a finger in their ass These are simpler times. This is 2011. It's true. (laughs) There aren't innocent bystanders. 
who just want to enjoy a morning on their lawn or ride the subway. <laughs> there aren't other animals involved who didn't consent. But yeah, they are literally in the pri- so they are so ensconced in privacy. They're in a tower in a canopy bed in their own minds. Yeah, that's a good scene. Was your sexiest part? So I thought all of the sex scenes were great, like very corporeal, like. Lots of fun stuff happening. His body's very hot. Her body's very hot. Hot bodies loving up on each other are hot. But there's this, when he catches her in, like, North Carolina, and, like, she's on the beach, and she's, like, walking by the ocean, and it's very calm. And then all of a sudden, like, out of the sky drops this shadow. Yeah. And she starts running as hard as she can, and then, like, he catches her and flips her over. A dragon shadow. A dragon shadow. And then he morphs into his human man form and he's like up on his elbows and they're both in the sand with the surf in the background. And he goes, that was a good chase. And it immediately takes all of the danger and all of the fear out of it and turns him into like this kind of adorable kitten almost immediately um, when she'd been so afraid that he was like literally going to rend her limb from limb. And then they have this very weird conversation on the beach I thought that was fucking adorable. And like, you know, because there's this moment where he says that was a good chase. And then she's like, I'm glad you liked it. And he's like, you know, like there's almost this question of like, do you want to do it again? Yeah. And like he spends so much of that first act being like, I'm not bored. And (laughs) I also thought that was a really good indicator, both of his like age and status, but also this fact that like he hasn't been stimulated yeah. in a really long time. And here comes this fresh faced, like new thing in his life that is like knocking him off kilter a bit. And that was endearing. What you said just sparked for me the fact that all three of the monster romance novels we've read so far have been monsters who are, you know, they're not creatures they're very powerful like one has been a god another one has been a ceo of also god adjacent and then this one is likewise god adjacent the fantasy of like someone super powerful thinking that you're the most special thing in the world yeah and i guess i wasn't expecting that from monster romance like there have been like echoes of things that i was expecting like you know, interesting body stuff, but also, like, in the Love, Laugh, Lich, there's something about, like, something that is fearful, like, and disgusting to other people being appealing and a source of curiosity for the love interest. But this book isn't that. This book is very much like a, like a billion, like an unproblematized billionaire romance who is also a dragon, Right, so it also has, like, feelings of mob boss in it, too. Yeah, he's very violent and, like, but also shifter. We say mob boss, but all that's in shifter, too. Absolutely. I think, like, the tropes of these things run together. Yeah. I mean, like, this will be a broader question that I think we kind of have for our wellness where we, like, talk about this, but just as, like, a preview where it's, like, okay, so if it's billionaire or shifter or mob, Hmm. like, why do we need him to be a dragon at all? Mm-hmm. And like that, that's the question that I had for this book where it's like, I don't un- like none of the things that you're doing are relying on his dragonness in a way that's like interrupting anything or adding anything. 
So, like, why does he need to be a dragon? Because we didn't get the dragon penis. So, like. Yeah. So, honestly, why? Um, so, I actually asked our listeners on Instagram if they feel like Rochester is a monster. Great question. And everyone said yes. Mm. And this book is not Jane Eyre. <laughs> love laugh lich might be jane eyre no this book is not jane eyre that book is not jane eyre but i think this book has a problem creating conflict period Mm -hmm. um so i'm hesitant to talk about it in the context of this particular text Mm -hmm. like all of the conflict is pia is too good yeah pia is too talented and too special yeah and our hero is a dragon and like all of the problems come from this like dragonness about him this monster like whatever we're supposed to understand about like he's greedy that doesn't really get brought up he gives up everything just for pia he's violent that's obviously a turn on we're all kind of attracted to something dangerous and a dragon is a really silly simple metaphor that almost obfuscates the da- and ex- and certainly excuses the already dangerous personality, violent tendencies, greed is good attitude that would otherwise need to be problematized and would problematize. The fact that you can say like this hero who I'm sexually attracted to is all of these bad things but it's because he's a mystical creature not because he's like equivalent to anything in the real world, right? I think that makes it easier to deal with, you know? And it allows you to get your yums. It's a super highway to your yums. So monstrosity is just your get out of jail free card. Literalizing your monstrosity, right? Because you and I struggle with how attractive Rochester is to us. We do. And how fascinating he is, even in his like most violent and cruel moments, right? It's true. Even knowing what we know about him, Jane and readers for for centuries at this point have struggled with that. Saying that it's because they're a mystical creature makes it a lot easier. <laughs> like, like Love Laugh Lich is probably a better example of this, where I was like charmed by the Lich, even though it was very literally like a corporate overlord Mm -hmm. but it was easy to enjoy it because it's like "Ah, he's a literal demon (laughs) isn't that funny and like this is doing a similar thing but without the sense of humor i'm gonna want to poke at that a little bit more especially with our last one because i i think there's a lot to that but i can't like (laughs) because they're all on the spectrum of escapism Mm. the idea that you would like that paranormal romance or fantasy romance of this kind or that monster romance exists as a further escapist for a billionaire yum Mm. is interesting to me but it also feels like oh it it can't just be that but there's also like there's been so many already like not to like but to maybe like put some pieces on the board Mm -hmm. there's so much here that reads like a bodice ripper even yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And what is the modern day Duke who's ripping bodices, pirate, right? Yeah. 
corporate overlord. No, I I know. And like what is so attractive about that bad boy in particular other than like, you know, his charming knowledge and like art collection. <laughs> it's also that he's so well resourced. Yeah, and I mean, we talked about that with Hummingbird, the world's tiniest dragons, the secret billionaire. Oh god, or like, you know, or like the secret royalty. And I was thinking about this with uh The Proposition by Judith Ivory and like why that book, mm-hmm. why I why have I been thinking about this in terms of monstrosity? Why make him a dragon? Why make him a duke? Why make him a dragon? Why make him a duke? We didn't need that. There's got to be something there, and it's got to be comfort, because romance is a genre of comfort reads, like we talked about the other day. What comforts you, like what you enjoy, you need to receive in comfort. Like you don't want to receive it in a way that you're problematizing things. It makes it harder. It's the grease. It's the Vaseline. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. But I think that's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing like... Rochester was a bad person, like a real bad person. But Darcy, bad person in his own right. Absolutely. And men in general, hetero men in general especially. Not a great track record. Not a great track record. So it's it's weird. What was your weirdest part besides everything we've talked about so far? So you can't say the size of the unicorn. (laughs) Um, I guess like the violent open-mouthed kisses hard open lips like a tortoise lunging towards a lettuce leaf (laughs) and then he like always just like slams his tongue (gasps) down her throat i was like this like you're not even scaly if you were scaly it might be interesting but yeah if you're scaly yeah like open your mouth listener I did this. Open your mouth. And slam it against someone you love. Try to make your lips hard with your mouth open and don't, you're wrapping them around your gums. How weird is that? Go and <laughs> Now go kiss the person you love most. Give me a kiss. No, yeah. it's heinous. Well, I'm glad you brought that detail up. That was also on my list. How about you? Uh, I mean, this book hits on a lot of stuff, um, where one woman can be your friend and the other one has to be a threat. Mm-hmm. Weirdest part that we haven't talked about a lot. We talked about a lot. We really ran through it. I think one of the things I thought was weirdest is that every time she goes flying with him, she's clutched in his claw. Yeah, why isn't she riding him? That's a good point. Because he's big. He's not that big. Why isn't she on his back? Yeah. Like, between his wing blades. Yeah. It feels like Freud would have a field day, right? Like, that's <laughs> got to be... Like, he, she's literally in his clutches. Yeah, she's literally in his clutches. And we didn't even talk about the weird secret baby that talks to her, which also one of my weirdest parts. Yeah. The fact that... Um, so, our main character, like, a lot of weird can, like, control their fertility, except when they get into the mating frenzy... But she can't because she's always had her power bound up. So she has an IUD and she finds out she's pregnant and she rushes to the doctor concerned because she has an IUD. The doctor says we're able to remove it with magic. So it's not an issue. You don't have an ectopic pregnancy. Explains what an ectopic pregnancy is, which was like a weird aside. (laughs) Helpful. The more you know. But then uh, 
you know, she gets, at, there's a big fight at the end of the book, which seems ir- so irrelevant. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely unnecessary. Her dragon lover brings her doctor from vacation. Anyways, he says, stop that. He cupped her face and wiped the tears away. It's not your fault. I flew your doctor back from Cancun and had quite a talk with her. First, I found out what an IUD was and how it could have endangered both (laughs) you and the pregnancy. I understand why you panicked and why you were afraid and I had forced the pregnancy on you. So I found out what an IUD was, how it could have endangered both you and the pregnancy. That's a weird two details to call out about IUDs. Like, the other book says, like, oh, it's a really effective form of birth control. But it's definitely literally presented as very dangerous. Like, no one's like, hey, here, I got, no one at any point is like, I get why you got an IUD. It's a pretty reliable form of birth control that's also long lasting. Yeah, and requires very little daily maintenance, you know? Yeah. Um, It's all like, could have been an ectopic pregnancy. Puts you at risk. Yeah, it was a weird way to talk about it. Yeah, also, like, I'm supposed to believe his, like, super dragon dick didn't feel a string tickle, not even once, and think... It wasn't even a scaled dick, so, like, (laughs) one would believe that it's as As sensitive. sensitive. If not more so. (sighs) If not more so, because he, like, an elder race. I think I know the answer to this question, but I do feel like I have to ask it. Is this a woe or a no? It's actually hard for me to answer, because I really enjoyed the first two acts of this book like I scarfed them down I was so excited and then once we got back from the other land I couldn't believe it was the same book yeah highly uneven so I you know I tend to fall on the side of nomance because I think there are so many good romance novels out there that aren't going to let you down in that way mm-hmm. and there's nothing here in like the first part the first two acts that I'm like you simply must mm-hmm um, so I would say it's a no-mance. It's a no-mance for me. I feel very lied to, but I'm really happy <laughs> that you and I could tackle and dispel this 11-year-old rumor about Dragon Bound. There is no Dragon Peak. Listeners, open your windows. Cry out. There is no dragon sex scene in Dragon Bound by Thea Harrison. And if you know the book that is subtweeted and talked about in whispered tones and you thought it was Dragon Bound, but you've discovered what it actually is, go ahead and let us know. Let us know. Please, please, please tell us. Tell us. <sighs> please tell us. Um, also, go to your local public library right inside of every cover of Dragon Bound. There is no dragon sex in this book. It's public service. Keep your unicorns a reasonable size if you're writing. Which means at least 15 hands. Horse-sized. How about just a regular-ass horse size? I feel like 15 hands is an average horse, but like, I don't know. 15 hands, I don't know how tall an average horse is hand-wise. I think it's believed, I believe it's between 15 and 17. That's pretty narrow. Let's see here. Average horse height. I know, everything here is saying, is telling me like five foot. That's not helpful. How many hands is that? I know, we don't, I don't know what's, how many hands are in a foot? How many hands are in a foot? (laughs) I don't know that measurement. Hands in hands. Thirteen point three to seventeen point three hands. Damn, Isabel. Former would be horse girl. Former would be horse girl. 
She knows the she knows the details. All right. Well, with that, I guess just like loosen your nays. <laughs> but never your principles. <laughs> Mwah. Woli guacamole, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womans and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womanspodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time.